Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers, and I am fantastically, dynamongously excited to welcome our special guest today for this edition of the Little Brown School podcast. All the way from Australia via the Upper West Side, my former hood, is Fiona Wood. Welcome, Fiona. Hi, Victoria. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Fiona, I, I kind of am in love with your book, Wildlife. Um, it received a New York Times review just recently, calling it enchanting, and it's received four-starred reviews uh, from Publishers Weekly, Booklist, School Library Journal, and Voya. I would spell out Voya, but I can never remember what it means. But Voya called it fresh, funny, and heartbreaking. And I will say it is also on uh, a, a best-of-the-year list, which we are not at liberty to reveal at podcast time. Uh-huh. No, thank you, Victoria. I've been absolutely thrilled at this beautiful, warm welcome from um, America. It's lovely. Fiona, can you tell us a little bit about the book? Mm. So Wildlife is a book about friendship and love and betrayal and grief. There are two point-of-view characters, Sibylla, who's a, a shy girl navigating her first romantic relationship and her first sexual relationship, Lou, who is... Um, in the throes of a, a very uh, deep grief following the death of her boyfriend. Um, the setting is a wilderness campus where the group of 16-year-old school students, a whole year, year level, goes, uh, goes away and stays in quite luxurious surroundings but in the wilderness and they have to embark on, on a whole lot of hideous uh, fitness and outdoor survival activities as part of the school curriculum. Um, Lou, I suppose, uh, intends not to get involved at all while she's there, but she finds herself inexorably drawn into an intrigue caused by Sibylla's nasty best friend, Holly. Uh, and when Lou observes the extent of Holly's manipulation and very deliberate cruelty, she is forced out of her uh, self-imposed exile and, and starts re-engaging with the world. So just your light summer <laughs> Nothing Wrong. much going on, just yes. thinking back. <laughs> but there's no one in a hockey mask lurking in the woods. No one in a hockey mask. And I have to say, this not you know, despite what I've just said, I think it's written and a lot of people have commented on the, the humour. It does have a sense of humour running through it, uh, notwithstanding some of those quite bleak areas uh, of the subject matter. What, well, I will say one of the things I love about the book is the balance of voice and that isn't to say that every moment is equal parts one thing and the other, equal parts light and dark. But I love how the balance of mood occurs through the books with the different events happening. That that life is pretty much sunshine and shadow all the time. It's just which which element predominates in every in any particular day or any particular experience and then deciding how we are going we as individuals will process what those experiences are and, and do we do we bring it into the light or do we thrust it back into shadow mm. so let's talk a little bit about feminism mm. shall we yes one of my favorite words i love the word feminism let's say it together shall we three two, one, feminism, feminism. because yay. feminism is yay. <laughs> There's been a lot of talk uh, in this country, uh, mainly by um, younger celebrity people, about they're not feminists. 
Do you guys have in Australia that same sort of debate about the meaning of the word feminism and its place in, in culture? Or is this a, a peculiar American thing? No, I think it's universal and it always perplexes me because when you look at the meaning of feminism, feminism being a movement that advocates equality for women, um, political, economic, social equality, who, what human being would not identify as a feminist, given that that's the definition of the word? And yet the word has such stigma, and I, and I do think it, it, it's definitely the case in Australia too, where a lot of young women, for instance, aren't prepared to uh, own the word or I don't know what it is. It's such a. It's a, feminism is a great thing. Uh, there shouldn't be any any um, reticence at all in claiming to be a feminist, whatever gender you are. Uh, exactly, feminism is for men too. Absolutely, they can come along. Yep. Um, do you? How does this work out in in the female relationships that you have in this book? Well, that, that's yeah. Holly, of course, is. Um, such a nasty, such a cruel character, and she is. Her, her behaviour is presented in a way that that critiques that disloyalty to another woman. I think, and in Sibylla and in Lou, you have women who identify as feminists, women, young women, they're sixteen, mm -hmm. uh, and they. I think they. They provide, not that that's the intention in writing them, but they do provide sort of a role model for younger readers of that young woman with agency, a woman who has a say in what she's doing, what she wants to do, what she doesn't want to do. Uh, and in the case of Lou, someone who will overcome her own difficulty and step forward and show kindness to another young woman who's in need of it, which is Sibylla in the course of the story. So, um, yeah, look, I think... The two, two of the characters are definitely stated feminists and the characters who are mean beings <laughs> probably don't call themselves feminists. Pro well, who knows? Uh, it's interesting to me because feminism in many ways is about power. It's not about power over men, but it is power in women to decide about their lives. And it's interesting to me the power dynamics in this small enclosed community, which we will get to oh, oh. in a moment, that Holly is trying to establish power for herself. Uh, you know, for her control of other people, but also control of her own image, her own marketing, by oppressing oh. versus uh, Sibylla and Luhor seeking a different way. I'm not, this is not to say that feminism is always the communitarian, let's all eat granola, because I'm a feminist and I do not eat granola, I eat steak. <laughs> but it is interesting to see how the different choices play out within the plot. Yes, it's true. Uh, look, I think I think that's right, and I think the other thing about um, you know I, I agree there are, there are lots of different versions of feminism, and I think that's probably at the heart of some of the difficulty in people accepting it. Perhaps they've seen a version of feminism that they don't that you know they can't really relate to or something like that. But uh, in Sibylla's case, she I think has a pretty typical for her age um, vacillation about it from time to time because she's she's. She's a 16-year-old, so on one hand she does, you know, she would call herself a feminist. On, on the other hand, she's involved in this very, you know, early stages of a new relationship with a hot boy, and she's very aware of, you know, the, what the what the ostensible role of girlfriend is. She examines it. She doesn't really like it, but she sort of also doesn't want to really be a failure of, of a girlfriend. So there are lots of, um, I suppose that I look at a lot of different facets of how someone 
is a feminist at 16 and the different selves that, for instance, Sibylla is trying on through the course of the narrative because she's she was a hard character to write, actually, because I wanted to write a character who didn't quite know who she was. So I think Sibylla, when she grows up, will be an absolutely hardcore, fabulous feminist. But during this time, she goes through some sort of, you know, a few periods of doubt and isn't is just not quite sure who she is. I think you said something really interesting there with Sibylla. There's various selves that she's trying on. One of the things that fascinates me about teen lit is its freedom to explore identity in different ways and and the sort of depicting how adolescents have that freedom well freedom or uh what's a good non-pejorative word for this look they're weird (laughs) well no because you know i i've said this before about certain other books when we enter adolescence, our bodies are changing so radically Absolutely. that our flesh is literally yeah. made strange to yeah. ourselves. Yeah. And, and who we are, we are jumping everywhere. So what you're talking about, the conscious um, adoption of self-models is really fascinating in Sibylla's mm. case. Let's talk about a related question because for some reason we evidently cannot talk about feminism without talking about sex. Mm-hmm. I love that this book is, for lack of a better term, sex positive. Mm. And by that we mean somebody's going to have sex, they're going to enjoy it, and nobody is going to die. <laughs> all, the repercu- all the repercussions are very proportionate, very human, yeah. That, because it is something that Sibylla decides to do. And then she decides she actually didn't want to take the relationship in that direction after she has experienced sex which I've also represented as, I think, realistic first-time sex. Not a great, not a great fun time, really. But, um, yes, yeah, Sibylla has... She, that, that's a good example of her trying on a self. You know, she has this incredible... What you're saying, Victoria, about uh, the teenage years being the time of physical change. You know, you are just a surging, seething mass of hormones. And so Sibylla goes through this thing of being incredibly sort of switched on sexually to this guy and she's a very she's a very desirous young woman she just she's obsessed by Ben and it sort of annoys her it's it's it drives her crazy she feels like she's been invaded by his presence and it's not like she thinks he's the greatest thing in the world she can see he's a sort of an annoying egotistical boy but she decides to act on that sort of chemistry and the physical attraction and she is genuinely fond of him and they are in this sort of early stage relationship but uh yeah she she decides later that it's not going to be the right thing for her with him at that time but nothing bad happens as a result of her doing no in it. fact it's a very positive <laughs> experience because she's learning what she wants emotionally yeah out of a relationship i i'm fascinated also by you as a writer do you have any qualms about depicting sex and sexuality in a positive, uh, uh, cataclysm-free manner? No qualms at all, no. I think it's... I feel I have a responsibility to the reader to present sex in that way because I think there are so many horrible representations of sex around that are available for teenagers these days. I guess I'm thinking mostly of pornography which is so misogynistic a lot of the time, really tedious and a very limited vocabulary. So I love the idea that there can be positive representations 
of sex and sexuality that are available for young readers. I think they need it now more than ever. Let's switch gears a little bit um, to talk about grief because I don't want Lou to get lost in the conversation here. I am, I think that grief, the theme of grief is one of the most powerful that we can deal with in literature. Again, that is a, such a huge, even physical transformation, a physical experience that we don't really like to acknowledge much because we like, you know, we need to be, see the bright side of life. Now I have the life of Brian. <laughs> <laughs> if I could sing, I would sing. <laughs> um, but the the core, the reasons for her grief are so transformative of her life and her relationships, and how she reach who she is within the field of her relationships. That's also a commentary on identity. How did you work through that theme? Mm. Well, I, th I think it's in you know it's an interesting sort of um, parallel journey that Sibylla and Lou have because while Sibylla is into this whole area of who am I, trying to find her authentic self and trying to find the courage to be that self. Lou probably already was pretty much there. She was, she's a mature, clever girl who, who had probably got to the point where she uh, is not afraid to be herself and does have a good sense of herself. So her, her journey relates to this, as you see, you know, this genuinely cataclysmic thing that happens, her boyfriend dies in a cycling accident, something completely out of her control comes into her quite ordered life and just completely causes havoc, grief, chaos. And she, her mothers have put her, have been incredibly sympathetic uh, and supportive of her mode of grieving, which has been to go away from school and to be home educated for a few semesters, or we call them terms, but three, you know, three quarters of the year. And she's agreed at in the fourth, the, fifth, the fourth quarter of the year, to go to this wilderness campus and try try to start re-engaging and try to have a fresh start. But she's actually a very determined girl who is, although she's agreeing to see the school counsellor and does see the school counsellor, she really is processing grief her own way. And I think grief uh, during the adolescent period is a really interesting thing to examine because some some kids are lucky enough to. Um, not to experience it during early childhood. And often adolescence is the first time that people encounter the death of someone they love. Um, it's, a, it's a hard thing for people to deal with. It's an important thing, again, I think, for people to read fictional representations of. It's really a helpful thing to see depicted in fiction. Um, but I think, too, that the teenage years, for every single teenager, there's, there's this sort of transition that relates, again, to the seething mass of hormones. You do you know, slough off your sort of childhood years and emerges a new person during the teenage years. And there is some sort of grief for that loss of innocence and the loss of a simpler time, if you've been lucky enough to have a sort of a simple, innocent childhood. So I think that whole, you know, that feeling of sort of surging hormones, the transition from childhood to adulthood that happens during these years, there's an element of grief in that too, which I really I like that. Uh, you and I will be going to the Allen workshop oh, here oh. shortly, where you'll be sitting uh, in conversation with uh, uh, E. Lockhart. And I, tip for the listeners: if you ask me a question after I've heard the had the third drink, the answer will be yes. <laughs> Thanks, Walter. So the theme of the Allen conference, the Allen workshop this year, is is the sky the limit? And um, 
spoiler alert, there is no sky. <laughs> so I, I've had this uh, notion of boundaries, but also um, uh, I was about to use a very technical uh, acad academic speak word, which I'm trying not to do. Moments. You can speak about liminal states. So I'm always fascinated with the idea of moving from not so much liminal spaces, but the process of moving from one context of life to another context of life. Yeah. And I, I, think, I think a lot about YA as that place of it is not a liminal place. It is a definitely a thing. But it is moving from one mode of living to a different mode of living. Yeah, and literature describing that. So finally, uh, talking about feminism and sex and grief, that are in this very heightened atmosphere, I will also say, I don't understand camp. Mm -hmm. And so I like to find something, you know, some cultural thing that an author is writing about that I just don't understand. Years ago, I, promote, I proposed a panel that was called, literally, What's with the Blood Sucking? Because, again, spoiler alert, <laughs> I don't understand still, to this day, what it is with the blood sucking. Please do not tell me it's about penetration and sex, because that's too boring. That's too boring. So... Camp is another one of those um, uh, those tropes that is is really rich in YA literature, and I understand yours is not quite a traditional American summer camp. It is a wilderness campus. There is a school element to it, but I'm taking this opportunity to ask you, a non-American, what is the deal with camp? Because I I never went to camp. I did not go to enclosed. Uh, modula modulated nature experiences. <laughs> Neither did I, Victoria, although my husband went to a school like this and partly it was his stories about it that uh, ignited my interest in it as a possible setting. But initially I was really attracted to it just from the point of view of taking people, taking characters away from parents, away from Skype, away from Angry Birds, away from Facebook um, and away from the internet in a way. Mm -hmm. So they're really just enclosed and they're forced to deal with each other on a one-to-one -one personal basis. And there is this pressure cooker atmosphere that, um, you know, away from family and all the usual support structures, it just sort of puts the heat under relationships in a way that I was interested in. But as well as that, it, and with my themes of death particularly, it calls to mind the romanticism with its interest in death and untrammeled nature and the primacy of emotion over reason. And that, to me, was a lovely support structure for my stories of emergent sexuality and grieving. So, again, another moment where my history comes back. This is the portion of the podcast where I tell you and Fiona that when I was a PhD student in biblical studies, my doctoral dissertation was on trees and death in the First Testament, and how the symbolism of trees structured our ideas of the afterlife in Western culture. Fascinating book. I would love to read that book. I didn't want to write that book. So here I am in children's <laughs> publishing today. <laughs> it's a circuitous route, but you found your home eventually. Eh, we'll see this week. I, you know, someday there's a cabana guy on a parasol drink just waiting for me somewhere. I know. I know a girl can dream.
Well, Fiona, we are so excited to have you in the United States for a bit, and we're so excited that we were able to do this podcast in person, uh, partly because I'm technically in, inefficient and uh, can't do it overseas. Uh, we know this because my podcast with Darren Chan, it was fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> but we're so excited that you are here. Wildlife is an amazing, wonderful book, and we really thank you so much for trusting us with it. And we are excited uh, that Six Impossible Things, the companion novel, is coming up next spring. And, and what are you up to right now? I'm writing the second draft of Cloud Wish, which features one of the very, very minor characters from Wildlife as the protagonist. Um, and enjoying that. And I'm also, I wish it wasn't happening, but I'm also plotting another novel a little bit soon, a little bit sooner than I should be, because that novel's going to be saying, come and play with me. <laughs> while while, while, oh, while Cloud Wish is saying, no, there's still a hard slog to be done here in the second draft. I know I'm not sexy, so, but you're, you're, I'm the one you came to the party exactly. with. Exactly. Mm. Yep. Yep. That's all coming up. Thank you so much, Fiona. Um, this has been Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers. And you've been listening to the Little Brown School podcast. Uh, and I'll say goodbye. And so will Fiona. Goodbye. Goodbye.